0: four score and seven years ago
1: our forefathers and no mothers <laughs> yes right well they had to have mothers because there wouldn't be fathers if there weren't mothers which came first the chicken or the egg right actually i have the answer to that you do <laughs> it was the egg and let me tell you why <laughs> okay the whole chicken and the egg thing is you know you had a pre-chicken that mutated into a real chicken and hmm. so the parents were all proto chickens, and then the egg had the mutation, so the egg had the real chicken in it. Then the chicken came out of the egg, so actually the egg came first. Okay, <laughs> there you go. That is, is, yeah, all right. Now I have the answer to life's all of life's problems. We know no, which all came of them. The meaning first, of right? meaning of life is forty-two, of course, as you know. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's forty-two. Huh? According to yeah Got Doug it. Adams yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yep, but but definitely the egg came first. So there you go. Uh huh. Obviously, I've thought that through. You have thought about that occasionally. From the rolling green hills of Cayuga County, New York, this is Disaster Tales. I'm Kate Fairweather. My co-host today is Barb Lonsky. What have you been doing, Barb?
0: So I was doing a little bit of research this morning, just kind of looking at some different stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at the coastline erosion on the Louisiana coast. They've lost nearly 2,000 miles of coastline. And they have attempted to correct it by putting in artificial barrier reefs. But the waterline has risen because of the levees and the oil industry taking volume out of the subterranean area. So the Gulf is actually sinking. And so the land is sinking with it. Over the last 80 years, there's been 2,000 miles lost. And, and I look at where I lived. I used to live in Violet, Louisiana, which is down the road. They call it down the road from New Orleans, down the road from Chalmette. Delacro Island was the end of the world, they used to call it because it was like where you met the Gulf and the Mississippi River came in together. And most of that is underwater now. And then of course they have a lot more density of population, which puts more pressure on the land because of the increase in building and the weights, you know, of of everything, all the infrastructure. And the people themselves are fatter because they eat a lot of, cajun food but the extra
1: weight causes it it to sink and that extra weight from all that cajun food is causing the entire state to sink it's like the perfect storm i'm surprised mississippi is underwater already because they've got the highest obesity rate in the nation well and the thing is that that's also part
0: of that coastline that's that's dropping i mean it's it's like going underwater and the population density there has increased, so you know that the density <laughs>
1: creates density. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> so like it pushes the land down. Jim's uh, <laughs> dense rock theory. <laughs> Denser rock theory. <laughs> Which he told me there actually is a website that talks about that.
0: It's actually something that they've researched, so he was really right. It's crazy so, how, so, could he
1: even so how, how does that theory go again
0: <laughs> well what happens is when people are born over areas that have a greater amount of rock density underneath it like granite and things like that that because of the excess in gravity it makes them shorter but people who are born <laughs> over areas that don't have as much denser rock underneath it, like the Texas Panhandle, because Mm -hmm. it's an aquifer and there's not actually a a granite bed underneath it, that those people are taller because they don't have the same amount of gravity pull on them as the (laughs) people over the denser rock.
1: So, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, that explains why. There's a little bit of genetics involved, too. (laughs) You think? Well, one thing that I've read about is that back in colonial times people were actually much taller than they were in during the civil war because they've been analyzing remains and there was a mm-hmm. story about i think it was george washington and um, ben franklin and i can't remember who else there was like four of them went went to france mm-hmm. and the french were talking about how you know rude they were or you know not rude and impolite but just rude Backwards and and unsophisticated the Americans were, mm-hmm. and then and they yeah. all just stood up. They were all over six foot tall, so they loomed over the French yeah. ambassadors, and and, and the, they quit complaining about the Americans after that. <laughs>
0: Isn't that interesting? Nutrition is a huge part of it. Exactly. Yeah. You know when people are you know nourished properly, they're going to be a lot taller, a lot bigger, a lot physically more healthy um, and mm-hmm. so I think sometimes you know that that was that's part of there's so many things that play into it the denser rock is interesting I think it was it is, good yes you know over a cup of coffee mm-hmm. talk or what, over whatever they were drinking talk but <laughs> but what but you what know if it's
1: really true <laughs> oh my god
0: <laughs> so but the fact is we were dense we were over dense rock we grew up in a we so that was right on a granite bed when we
1: well actually S- slate yeah, slate. slate isn't dense, but yeah, there was granite yeah. underneath it. So how come they're not really short up in New England? Well, they are. Yeah, actually. they are. <laughs> when I'm down here in Texas, I'm like average height. Mm-hmm. I'm five foot seven. When I come back to mm-hmm. New York, there are so many men that right. are as tall or shorter than me. I it's amazing. It's, it's like almost like uh-huh. a culture shock. Of course, and then I'm five foot. Seven and a half on one leg, on one foot, and then five foot six and a half on the other foot because I had a hip replacement oh, that made one leg longer. And then I fell down and broke my leg in a cemetery, which made the other leg shorter. And I was planning so, to change my name to Eileen for a while. I
0: was to Eileen, yes.
1: <laughs> but, but I decided against that.
0: Well, at least you're not Peg.
1: <laughs> if, yeah. <laughs> Pegging it and wigging it. You could work at IHOP. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think too many pancakes would make me more dense. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting because if you look at our family demographic, even
0: our parents were very diverse in their height. Dad was 6'4", mom was 5'2". The the children in the family range from 5'7", to 5'5", to 6'4", to 6'6". To 5'5", to 5'2", or 5'2", to 5'5". So, you know, and the first half of us were in New York early on and then moved to Texas. So you'd think that those last two would be super tall because they were not over denser rock. They were over the aquifer when they were growing. But they're not. Right. So,
1: (laughs) you know. They're not not particularly short either, but yeah, you know, maybe he's got something there. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he thinks he does that's the important part he, he certainly does <laughs> oh boy well, that was a waste yeah, of time so that's the dense rock theory <laughs> we're, we're going over all the big scientific questions right now for the chicken and right. egg that's dense rock theory <laughs> a lot of ground here <laughs> yeah.
0: denser rock in my area you're not so dense down there yeah. so
1: well the Texans are tall but they're also they're also descended from from Kelton um, Dutch and I don't know how tall Mm -hmm. Dutch people are but that's why they have narrow shoes here (laughs) here comes another theory (laughs) (laughs) when I was when I was selling shoes all the time I found a map Mm -hmm. that showed where the narrow feet women were in the country and they were and there's like a little comma that starts up uh, like in northeast kansas and then comes down into the texas panhandle through the oklahoma panhandle western oklahoma and and let me tell you there was a lot of ladies that had very narrow feet i need they come in and say i need a double a i need a triple a you know it's like i need a four and a half triple a and i'm going you don't have feet you have legs is what they were <laughs> The West Texas bird legs. But their Our hair doesn't move in the wind. <laughs> their legs are very thin. doesn't matter what they're... It can be skinny. They can be fat. They can look like a, a freaking <laughs> lollipop.
0: <laughs> they better than egg like... on a
1: stick, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I can't remember anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, basically yeah. it is. I got a stick, except their hair's better. But, you know, I think about, too, the fact that... <laughs> well, what do you call those... Oh.
0: come from walking in cow manure. Did you know that? From being barefoot and walking
1: in cow manure. <laughs> God, that explains a lot. Are you... <laughs> that explains a lot. Well, at least I don't look like a Tootsie Pop. <laughs> so, but, yeah, my feet are, I wear size 11 shoes, mm-hmm. and, you know, the feet, yep. they're very wide. Well, we like inherited
0: that C. lovely shoe size from our father, because he was a 14 quadruple E. I used to polish his shoes. It took me all day. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh gosh, yes. Here, go go clean my boots. I'll be back next week. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that took hours. <laughs> how many cans
0: of saddle soap did it take?
1: Yeah, that was always and and he never showed us how to do it. So I'm scraping off concrete, you know, and mortar, and and I'm, and I'm putting the the wax on over what's left of the mortar because right. I can't get it all yeah. off. So it was a challenge. Yeah. So at least they were yeah. shiny in places.
0: <laughs> well, he used to say he measured the strength of his children by how many of his shoes they could pick up. So that was his.
1: That was well, there you go. And he put our littlest sister into his shoe after she came home yep. from the hospital and she fit.
0: Sure did. Craziness.
1: He did a lot of weird things <laughs> with his shoes. Like throwing oh, them down yeah, the stairs yeah. and scaring you. <laughs> Maybe he had a <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know. That- no, night that night that he did that,
0: well, there was also the paper the paper airplane made out of a newspaper after we watched the birds. That one was pretty savage. But the shoes, <laughs> the shoe, he, he threw it he down the stairs. And I fell backwards down the stairs and hit my head on the wall at the bottom of the stairs where the phone was. And the phone rang. I hit the wall so hard. You know, I hit the wall phone right it rang my what rang your
1: bell, didn't it? <laughs> and he's up there at the top of the
0: stairs going, ugh. Uh, uh. He was on medication for his headaches at that time. So he thought it was funny, but it really
1: wasn't. <laughs> yeah, he, he did until you tell you that bell rang and then he was like, oh, it's like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs>
0: thanks, Dad. Like throwing down the cigarette button, telling me to step on it when I had bare feet. You know, that was kind of He was a little sadistic at times. <laughs>
1: I was yeah, you were you were what yeah. four? Three or four? I looked at you like what is wrong with you?
0: He told me to do
1: it. <laughs> Why in God's name did you Why do Why did he that? ask me to? That was the question. Yeah. And he was that was that was another one where he was like yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't think <laughs> you'd really do it.
0: His word was law, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for you, maybe. That's
1: my problem, I guess. Um, <laughs> yep, yep. I stood there and watched you do that, and I went, what the <laughs> hell is wrong with you? <laughs> but you were, yeah, you were very small and you did what Daddy said, and he did, uh-huh. he never dreamed you'd actually do it.
0: <laughs> yep. Don't leave oh, I'm
1: going to have to get cleaners from my eyes.
0: <laughs> oh. So anyways, I think we're supposed to be talking about Hurricane Audrey. <laughs> and, and not
1: and, and Tropical warm Jim, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Either, one Either one of them.
0: This book on Hurricane Audrey that you sent me was like, oh, oh. incredible. Heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. Well, when you were talking about the coastline, I know that Bob Sheets, when he was working for NOAA, for the Hurricane Center, after every hurricane, he'd go and take picture aerial photographs right. of the coast. And just in the time that he was doing that, which I don't know how many years it was. It wasn't maybe 10. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. but um, And I should have because that's what we're doing here. But... He's he's recognized that a, most of our East Coast and the Gulf Coast has had a lot of land loss right. because of the hurricanes. They either they either grind out. I know that um, in North Carolina, I was down there for a hurricane, and there was a road that went to the mm-hmm. Outer Barrier Islands, and it was completely. It's like somebody somebody took a mixer and just ground hmm. it away. And they were trying to decide whether or not they should rebuild it or put in a bridge. And of course, they decided, well, bridge would be too expensive. So let's put in something else that'll disappear right. next time there's a hurricane. But I'd like to uh, I'd like to see, look at Bob's Bob Sheets' mm-hmm. picture. Yeah, I looked at a bunch of different maps that they had.
0: And actually, there was an article on Vox about the coastline erosion, which is where I got some of the information from. The maps were startling. Homa which is in Thibodeau Parish, was underwater. That was <laughs> the projection. If they get more than five feet of flood water, that whole area, you know, it's it's just, it's sad because people are so, so determined and resilient that they want to stay where they are, which it's your home, I understand. But the fact is, if it's going to wash away the next time that there's a storm, then... But I know my friend Lloyd and his wife, they, they said, well, what did you do? You know, they, they lost everything during, it might've been on Audrey or or Camille, one of the other ones. I said, what did you guys do? He said, well, we just rebuilt, you know, we just rebuilt. And it's like, you're in a, an area that is, it's like the people out in California who build in the mudslides, you know, happen. It's like, we're going to rebuild. Oh yeah. Let's put them. Multi-million-dollar house on this property, and it's going to slide down the hill into the ocean the next time there's a rainstorm. But <laughs> I think it's a form of insanity. <laughs>
1: hmm
0: Yeah, it's down the road. They call it down the road. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mhm. If that,
0: yeah. No, Placaman, well, Bell Chase, it's, it's on the east bank of the river. My friend um, Lloyd used to be a ferry operator. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a ferry maintenance guy, and he lived on the levee right there in Bell Chase, which is Placaman's parish. They, I mean, routinely, mm-hmm. they would run the ferry up the river and let the storms come in and then run it back down, but they were underwater a lot. I mean, and they lived right next to the levee and still had water, which mm-hmm. is pretty unusual. Usually, if you're on the levee or near the levee, it's not as bad. But
1: And I'm looking at a map right now that shows Homa. that almost Thibodeau Homa. County Parish. No, I'm sorry. Thibodeau Parish. <laughs> so, Ter- Terrebonne Parish um, is almost entirely swamped, mm-hmm. according to this picture. Yep. Plaquemines is, is swamped. St. Bernard is swamp. And La Forche. it's waterlocked by the Industrial Canal
0: and Lake Pontchartrain and the Mississippi. It's waterlocked, So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Right. So uh-huh. it's basically an island. Hurricane Audrey started as a low-pressure system in the Bay of Campeche in on June 21st, and it developed and didn't move very much until the 25th when it became a tropical yeah. storm.
0: I have that it started on June 11th in the Caribbean and then moved into the oh, Bay. Oh, that's right. It did. It so it was a... So it started in the Caribbean
1: on the 11th, Um, and it wandered through the Gulf along mm -hmm. this Mexico border, across the Yucatan to the Mexico border, and became a tropical depression. And nobody thought much of it. Sustained winds of 85 when they flew through it. And they thought, well, you know, it's not, the conditions aren't really right for it to develop into anything bad. Because what they do is they look at the water temperature at the surface, winds aloft, where the pressure centers are, and things like that. And they really thought that the Weather Bureau really didn't mm-hmm. think a whole lot of it until it started moving north, on like the 20, around the 23rd, 24th.
0: It kind of lulled me into a sense of security because it was not moving very fast. It didn't seem terribly intense. But by the time it made landfall, they had labeled it a Category 4, but it was later downgraded to a 3 in the Gulf of Mexico. It made a direct hit on Cameron Parish. So Port Arthur, Texas was affected. Things to the east of it were affected. But that was where it really did the most devastation. It made landfall early in the morning on the 25th of June. But they had predicted that it wasn't going to make landfall until the 25th Mm -hmm. late in the afternoon. And so people had prepared for evacuation the night before. They were going to get a night's sleep, and then they were going to jump in their cars and head north. But it, it intensified in, in speed and strength and made landfall probably 8 to 10 hours prior to what they had predicted. And so people were caught totally unaware and totally unprepared. They were in their homes still. They went out to go get in their cars, and their cars were underwater. And so they had to deal with the storm as it was at that point which was devastating. The tidal surge was up to, it was 12 feet above flood stage, but it moved in 25 miles from the coast. And so everything in its path, the Gulf just kind of consumed everything. When the eye passed over, then things, the winds reversed and it just created even more havoc. So the all the way through from beginning to end, the storm just raked across the land and destroyed things.
1: The peak sustained winds that Hurricane Audrey had were 125 miles an hour, which puts it squarely in the center of a Category 3. And the low pressure,
0: 946 millibars, was the peak of the barometric pressure.
1: But people were killed
0: before the storm even made landfall. There were nine people killed in the Gulf of Mexico when their boat capsized. As the storm moved in and tidal surge began, people just were watching as their loved ones disappeared in the floodwaters. I read so many accounts from this book of Hurricane Audrey by Nola May Whitler-Ross and Susan McPhillan goodson accounts of family members who survived maybe one out of 14 or 15 family members and told the story of how people little by little were just pulled under the floodwaters or trapped in debris or crushed by moving water with debris in it. Trapped in barbed wire. Animals were being moved along with the waters. People holding their children and having them sucked out of their arms during the tidal surge that came in. Clinging to trees and debris and just trying to survive.
1: When you think about hurricanes, people, I'll have a hurricane party. I'll stay in my house. The water's never gotten this high before. My house has survived all the other hurricanes. And then they get in there and then things happen that are different. You're
0: past the point where...
1: Well, yeah, and the thing is, in a lot of hurricanes, people will get in there or in floods and all kinds of places. They'll say, oh, I'll be fine, like Harry Truman on Mount St. Helens. And then they're not. But people get out there and they're not going to evacuate. And then things start to go to hell and then they want to evacuate.
0: And then it's too late.
1: Well, it's not just too late, but they're calling and expecting first responders, police officers and firefighters to come get them. I've worked with a woman whose husband was a firefighter in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. and she was very upset because he was having to risk his life for people who refused to evacuate. Right. And it's getting now to the point where sometimes they will say, if you're not out of here by now, we're not coming in to get you. Right. Because why should they risk their lives? I mean, it's one thing to risk your life when somebody's in trouble. It's another one when they're stupid.
0: Well, and the thing is personal responsibility. I mean, if they're not willing to take the responsibility for themselves, why should someone else risk their life?
1: Well, yeah, and you don't want people to die. You want to be able to rescue them, but at some point, you got to protect yourself.
0: So let me read this let me read this one account from this book, um, Hurricane Audrey by Nola May Whitler-Ross. It's called Blown Into the Tops of 20-Foot Trees. The water began coming up so fast and unexpectedly in front of the Oliver Therios uh, Sr. home in Grand Chenier that Thursday morning... June 27, 1957, that no one could believe their eyes. So I think this must be thir- the, supposed to be the 25th. They've never seen such high water uh, on this big ridge before. Now, the Cheniers are sandbar-type structures that run from the Gulf northward. And there's different named areas, the Grand Chenier, the Front Chenier, the Back Chenier, all these different um sandbars that people lived on and these ridges are higher than water level and so these people thought they were safe. It says everyone got to the fur house except Patsy Miller and my mother Vita Therio, who was still in the garage when it went and they lost their lives. The other eight of us crowded in the fur house and before long the waves came and caught the fur house and sent it swirling across the water. It slammed into some trees and broke up. We all went flying in different directions. In all of the confusion, the strong wind, rain, and waves pelting over us, I was unable to see what happened to everyone. I just know that I lost all three of my little children, Ricky, who was four, Dolores Ann, who was two, and my four-month-old baby Donnie Gerard Nunez at this time. Also lost during this was my sister-in-law, Elizabeth Miller Therio, and her week-old baby, Dale James. The rest of us were thrown into the tops of 20-foot tall trees which were swaying like they were made of paper. We hung on those trees the rest of the day until things quieted down and we were able to walk to the Arsenal Miller home. My home was completely gone, as was my father's. Only my brother Oliver Jr.'s was still standing and it had been washed back against some of the trees. The postscript, those that lost their lives in this household were Mr. Oliver uh, Mrs. Oliver Therio, Mrs. Oliver Therio Jr., Ethel Patsy Miller, and the children of Ace and Loretta Nunez, Ricky Jerome, Dolores Ann, and Donnie Gerard. And so the, the the biggest toll of reading through this book was when you, anytime you saw that these people, the, the households, they name it by household, that they had children, you could just about guarantee that those children were not going to make it. And it was just tragic. These people lost not only their homes, but they lost large parts of their family. And they were all, a lot of them were related in that area. And so it wasn't only their own family, but their extended family. And uh, just sad.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that is, it's tragic. Well, when you're inundated, you can only hold so many kids above the water. If you have an infant and then you have a toddler that's, what, 10 months older maybe? Yeah, right. And and then any other children. I mean, you could, if you're trying to get through a floodwater like that, you can, you can only hold one child, and and that may not be successful. Mm-hmm. And the younger they are, the more susceptible they are to the cold and hypothermia too,
0: and drowning. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. And there drowning. were, you know, several several accounts of people who had their children held tightly in their arms, and they were sucked away by the by the waves. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's just heartbreaking. And then, of course, a lot of them, because it was a, a the Gulf storm surge moved in and then went back out, they never found a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was something that was just t- to think, okay, well, it's one thing to, to know that your child is no longer with you and that you have seen them and you can have a funeral for them, but to not even have a confirmation of that. There's this one section in this book also. It's called The Final Cry from the Marsh. And this person says, One of the saddest memories of Hurricane Audrey, says Charles Hackett, who lived near the Gibbstown Bridge at the edge of the marsh, was when just at dark the mothers who had their babies pulled away from them by the raging waves would come to the edge of the marsh looking for their missing children. They could see nothing, but they could hear the lonesome, heart-wrenching cries of hundreds of nutria out in the vast dark swamp. The nutria is a, it's a rodent. It's like a giant-looking rat-woodchuck combination thing, but they're pretty big, sometimes up to as much as 15 pounds. You don't want to hit one with your car. I did that when I was in New Orleans. Not good. So the, the cry, they said, it sounds exactly like the cry of a human baby. And then it says, Then one by one in the days to come, these mothers slowly admitted to themselves that their children could, have not, could not have survived and that they were not out there in the marsh. They were really gone. Finally, most of them were able to accept and grieve. Some, however, never could come to grips with this. For years, rumors flew about sightings of different missing children seen in Lake Charles, in Lafayette, even in Franklin, Louisiana. Some mothers pursued these rumors to the bitter end. Forty years later, there are still families out there denying, not believing because no actual physical evidence, no body was ever found. Facing the fact that a member of their family was gone, even though they could not find his body, was perhaps the worst cross that the hurricane survivors had to bear. There was no finality, no ending to their nightmare. Hurricane Audrey has now been relegated to the far distant past, but their memories will haunt forever.
1: That I, anybody that loses a child, it's a terrible thing. Parents should not outlive their children. But when you lose them in a, when you lose them in a, an emergency or disaster, dangerous thing like that that you don't have any control over I think that's that's even worse, because you don't know. A, a lot of times, you will never find a, find the remains, and and a lot of people, even when their children are go missing, and uh, they they still believe they're alive until right. they actually come up with a body. And I think survivor guilt is
0: another thing that is just. You know, I know I've worked with hospice some over the years and people, when you lose somebody, you know, there's that survivor guilt. Why couldn't it have been me? You know, especially when it's a child, you're, you're thinking, oh, if I had just done things differently or why couldn't they have taken me and not that child? And that's another, you're, you're dealing with the, the loss of everything you own. You're dealing with the loss of a child. Then you're dealing with the guilt of the fact that you actually survived And it's just amazing the strength that these people have in these situations where they can actually get through that portion of their life and actually be able to function beyond it. And some don't. Some struggle with, you know, those things and never get beyond it.
1: Not only is there survivor's guilt, but when you're, when you have a loss like that, there's actual physical pain that you feel. Uh, when you break up with somebody, and you're depressed and and it feels like your heart is broken, it's because mm-hmm. you feel have physical pain. And there
0: is actually a there is actually a clinical uh, condition called broken heart syndrome. We have a friend, a pastor friend of ours, who lost his wife of forty some years, and she died just a really cancer, long term care, you know, just a really horrible thing. And he went through having severe chest pains. And when they checked his heart, his heart was okay. But it was that broken heart, literally, you know, and it is a clinical condition that they document when people go through that kind of uh, loss. And it's interesting, because some of the some of the people that went through the storm, actually, who have survived the storm, there was, It says there was a number of people who survived the hurricane only to go to their heavenly reward within a short time after Hurricane Audrey and whose families attributed their deaths to the problems that developed in Audrey. Among them were, and then it lists the names of the people, but some of it was heart failure. Some of it was just severe depression, I think, you know, that they weren't able to get past it.
1: Depression actually also has physical symptoms. Your body mm-hmm. slows down and you have like your digestive processes slow down and and your thinking mm-hmm. is slowed and your perception is actually like darker mm-hmm. and duller. If you're standing, if you're looking outside and you see flowers and you have, and you're depressed, it's a good possibility that they won't, they won't be the same color. They'll be dimmer and duller colors. Mm-hmm. But I know, you know, you have anxiety attacks and that can give you chest pains and and just stress and anguish, all of those things can right. cause physical effects.
0: And the thing is, I've learned you know, through working in, in hospice and working in the medical profession for years that grief is a process. It's not something that you attain a point where you stop grieving. Grief continues on. The effect of grief will diminish over time if it's dealt with properly. But if it's not dealt with properly, then you can experience those physical symptoms and it can actually cause you to have health problems over the, the period of time that you're going through it. Nobody can tell you how long or how to grieve. It's an individual thing. It's something that each person has to come to terms with in their own heart, in their own mind, in their own psyche. I think in this country, that's something that people are expected. Oh, well, you know, you lost all, everything you had in a hurricane and you lost some of your children and get over it. Well, no. You're never going to get over it. The That's the effect right. of it will diminish over time, but you're never going to get over it. That's why when they talk about Hurricane Audrey, people spoke in terms of before Audrey, B.A., and after Audrey. It, it was such an event in that area of the country and the people that experienced it that it became a, a, a point of um t- setting a timeline. Was it before Audrey? Was it after Audrey? So
1: Right, and... Yeah, because they had loss of family, they had loss of property, they had big events like that, big traumatic events. Their livelihood, and-
0: their jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, the industry down there was totally devastated. Oil industry, the farming, all of the things you know that that caused people to be able to make a living. It was all completely yeah. changed.
1: And that happens a lot. And I know that state by state, it's usually where it's funded, but there's something called Disaster Unemployment Assistance, DUA. And what that is, is if the place of business that you normally work at is damaged and can't operate because of the storm, or you lose income from work because of the storm affecting wherever you work, then you can be eligible for this assistance that'll try and help you fill in the gap there where you couldn't work. And I'm glad to see that a lot of times people are not only have they lost their homes or somebody's been injured or somebody's been killed but then they don't have any income cuz they can't go to work cuz work is gone so there there is that disaster right. unemployment assistance yeah. program in most states after disasters and that's and I think that's a really good thing and
0: audrey was was registered as the seventh deadliest storm experienced in the continental US um since 1900 there were 431 plus fatalities they may never know the actual count and in Cameron Parish including 154 children under the age of nine perished in Cameron Parish and it was termed the fifth costliest storm in the U.S.
1: yeah and that storm damage was 147 million dollars in 1957 which would translate to 1.1 billion dollars today so it was a very costly storm
0: they retired the name Audrey after the storm because yes. it was such a devastating event that they retired the name as a hurricane name.
1: Yeah, that's, they do that after the big ones. And
0: the storm, you know, it caused the suspension of drilling in the Gulf of Mexico mm-hmm. because there was such, such damage to the infrastructure there. And um, the coastline was changed drastically at that point. And the wildlife and fauna were damaged and severely altered. So it it took a toll in human terms and in industrial terms, but also in natural terms, as far as the loss of coastline, the loss of animal and wildlife um, habitat and just numbers of wildlife. Snakes were a huge problem. Several of the accounts that I read in this book was what many people died from snake bites because they would get to a piece of land that was dry And above the water level and it would be infested with snakes the water moccasins and stuff that would come
1: yeah they're trying to stay dry too there were a lot
0: of mad cows Mm -hmm. a lot of mad cows that attacked people and of course the nutria there was an account of one lady who ended up on a large piece of flooring with a mattress in the middle of it and she said it was completely filled with nutria that were on this piece Hmm. of flooring And so she shared it with the Nutria, who cried all night long. She said it was like a bunch of babies sitting around her crying. Oh, my gosh.
1: The other thing that happens is when the oil industry, when they start leaking into the Gulf, it also affects the shrimp and the Mm -hmm. oysters and the other things that people harvest. And so there's income loss there as well. And so that was the immediate effect at Cameron Parish, the coastline. But this hurricane
0: spawned 23 tornadoes, and some of them probably weren't even recorded because several of the accounts in Cameron Parish said that it was like a tornado came through and and took houses out. Mm -hmm. It continued to track to the northeast over the next several days and produced 23 tornadoes, up to 10 inches of rainfall with flash flooding and high winds in its wake. In Mississippi, two people were drowned. Alabama had 16 of the 23 tornadoes that were spawned by the storm. In Evergreen, Alabama... Fish and crayfish dropped from the sky as a result of the storm. They were pulled up in the storm and then deposited in the area around Evergreen, Alabama. Two people were killed in Alabama. Mm -hmm. The storm moved north and dropped over 10 inches of rainfall in Indiana and the Illinois area. Ten people lost their lives as a result of flooding as they were swept away off the highways. There's a caution people don't realize with flash flooding and flooding. The saying is, turn around, don't drown. And it's so important because you don't know what's underneath and the the force of the water moving through can sweep your car right off the road. And these people drown because of it.
1: Well, and even if there's just, if you can't see the bottom, even if there's just a few inches of water that's going over the road, there's no guarantee that that road is actually going to be where it's supposed to be when you drive through that water. Right. Because sometimes the roads will wash away. And so you'll be driving along, and you can see the other side where the water comes out, so you think you're safe. And then all of a sudden you hit a hole where there used to be road. You tip over, and you float down the river. Right.
0: I had an incident happen here several years ago. We had a really abrupt January thaw. And I had gone over to the town where we were going to church, went to music practice. And when I went, on the, went over, I came across a bridge, and the water was flowing really heavily underneath the bridge. And I thought, oh, it's really, you know, getting pretty high. Went went up there, spent a couple hours, came back down through, crossed the bridge. The water was almost to the deck of the bridge at that point. Mm-hmm. Went back the next day and the bridge was gone. It had completely undermined and washed the bridge down the, the stream. And so people don't recognize or realize the power of water and how much it can move.
1: Yeah, and even if you're not going through it the fact that it undermines foundations and pilings and Mm -hmm. bridge work and i know that (laughs) i know that i was in florida in 2004 and i was in a hotel that was right on the beach and they evacuated us for hurricane francis well first thing that happened was somebody comes over to me and says come over here and look at the tv and i did and they said isn't that Jim Cantore in front of your hotel and I went oh crap <laughs> cuz if you see Jim Cantore you know You're in you in trouble don't need to be there. so that we went we were evacuated came back the entire hotel looked like uh, like egg crates it had it was there was nothing there but the concrete rooms and the bottom of it was undermined so badly that was going to tip over so they had to destroy the entire hotel and so i learned two lessons one if you're on the shore and there's a storm coming you need to not be there and the other thing is if you see jim Cantori, it's time to leave right
0: <laughs> i've seen some of his footage where he's blowing away in those storms <laughs> Blew his hair clean I know. off. He's clean bald on top he of He used his to death. have lots of hair. <laughs> so <laughs> this storm, you know, it, it hit the, the Gulf Coast. It moved up into Alabama. But then it continued to move northward and dropped over 10 inches of rain in Indiana and Illinois' area. Ten people lost their lives as a result of flooding and being swept away off the highway. In Onondaga County, in the town of Skinny Atlas, New York, which is just about 25 minutes from where I live, Six lives were lost by drowning and traumatic injury from debris. Two boys were playing in a lake and drowned, and then um, the traumatic injury was from, like, trees falling and electrocutions. The tropical depression continued into Canada, where 10 people were killed in Montreal. Nine of those deaths were due to weather-related auto accidents. The devastation and the effect of the storm damage as it passed through the north was because of an intensification of the storm. It was downgraded to a tropical storm on June 28th, but a cold front uh, caused Audrey to re-intensify into an extratropical cyclone, and then it further intensified after encountering another cold front over the Great Lakes six hours later. The secondary effect caused the storm to pack hurricane-force winds up through central New York into New England and up into Canada. Audrey's storm surge began to recede about 10 hours after landfall, and it was back to normal about a day and a half later. But the lives of many...
1: And that's in, in Louisiana, in Louisiana,
0: right? right, in Louisiana. Uh, the results of many lives were changed forever because of the loss of life, the loss of homes, infrastructure, and things like that.
1: Yeah, and that's something else you may not think about is you, when you have a disaster where your homes are damaged, you also have damaged infrastructure. So you lose your power, you lose your telephone, you use your cell phone towers, you lose... Bridges, you lose roads, you lose hospitals, and the ability to preserve food, right? Refrigeration and cooling, yeah, yeah because the mm-hmm. power goes out. You may have spills when there's failure of containers that have hazardous materials in them. Mm-hmm.
0: The supply lines for grocery stores, you don't have the ability to bring food in, and
1: or keep your medication refrigerated, or whatever needs to be done there, and so. Mm-hmm nightmare which is why they call them a disaster normally when a hurricane hits the coast it Mm -hmm. loses power as it goes uh, over land because it doesn't have that warm moist air that keeps coming up Mm -hmm. and circulating in the storm but when all that warm moist air came up and hit that those cold fronts it actually caused more turbulence in the air and and a lowering of the barometric pressure and that caused the winds to be higher and all the rain caused the flooding all the moisture from the gulf hitting that cold front dumped the moisture out onto the ground so that's why you had all the flooding it's not normal for a storm like audrey to happen because normally once they come up ashore they lose power and they turn into thunderstorms that produce some tornadoes and then they turn into flooding rain and then just rain Mm -hmm. but in this one Audrey hit that extra energy two different times, and so it traveled all the way across the eastern Mm -hmm. United States into Canada, which is very rare. We
0: had a, a neighbor who lived down the road from us who said he was in Auburn trying to go through Auburn, which is about 20 minutes from where we live, and he said that they couldn't even pass through Auburn because there were trees down everywhere and the power lines were down from the storm when it came through. So one of the things I noticed about Audrey in the Cameron Parish area is that the Louisiana Power Authority did not want to restring lines and put power back into that area because it had gotten lost. And Governor Long went to bat for them and said, you're going to do this and you're going to take care of these people. And so then they had to restore the power to that area because they Mm -hmm. said, well, you know, it's it's just they shouldn't be living there because the potential for a hurricane. But that wasn't their decision. (laughs) And so the governor really went to bat for them.
1: Yeah, that was Huey Long, and he was he was the Kingfish. That's right. That's what they called him. Yep. The King people Fish. in Louisiana loved him. The I Longs know. were wonderfully kind
0: to the people of Louisiana because they were Louisianans themselves.
1: Right. So. Although his tenure was marked by a lot of corruption too. And there's still corruption in Louisiana. <laughs> yes, there is. I experienced that when I lived there. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. when the yep i yeah. know yeah well there's stories we'll do it in a hurricane katrina one but there's some interesting stories about louisiana from mm-hmm. hurricane katrina too and frederick too when frederick went through it hit alabama but the
0: devastation in new orleans was pretty pretty bad
1: yeah and people do you know new orleans is really not a place where we should have people living anymore back when they first created it which was May 7th 1718 it was called La Nouvelle New Orleans yeah La Nouvelle New Orleans New Orleans. that's how they say it down there New Orleans oh, <laughs> we're having problems with this aren't we okay so they said it was founded in the spring of 1718 which is May 7th so it's been there for a very long mm-hmm. time but during all that time it's gotten more and more people they've deforested more and more of it so that they could build it's, it's basically one big city, the whole surrounding area as well, because of all the trade from the Mississippi and the Gulf. But it's losing altitude. It's getting lower and lower. A lot of it's below sea level. And planners and responders try to encourage people that if you're in a place that gets the same disaster over and over again, maybe you need to relocate. And I know it's hard to do because... You own the home. It's your home. You have friends and family. You have your job. So it's, it's difficult to do. But sometimes, I mean, it's not, a lot of New Orleans is not going to be there over the next 50 years. And people are going to have to do something else. Well, and the thing that's, it's interesting
0: from living in that area, which I did for several years, the spirit of people is what keeps them in those situations, I think. Because it is a familial thing. My family's mm-hmm. always been here. We're going to stay here. We are New Orleans people. We are, you know, we are Cajuns. Yep. We are these, it's like a tribal type mentality where, you know, this is the way we are. This is the way we've always been. And we're not going to change. And they are some stubborn people. And you'll find them anywhere in the country, not just in New Orleans. Oh, Texans have the same kind of mythos. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, a personal Thing. This is our city. This is our area. This is where we have our roots. And even if the roots are put down into pretty thin topsoil, (laughs) or swamp, or swamp, yeah, they still want to stay.
1: Yeah, and that's what makes it so difficult for people. If they have to change their way of thinking, if they're going to have change even where they live or their way of life. I know my friends in New Orleans, I had a family that I, a lady that I worked
0: with, and they had a home over on the East Bank, over in Mattery, that area. And when Hurricane Katrina came through, they had, over the years, they lived in Homa growing up. They had been through hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. And finally, when Katrina came through, they said, we're done with New Orleans. And they moved to Lafayette, which Lafayette's further inland. You know and uh, sold their home because it was one of the few homes that was actually standing at you know after that that whole disaster so that the real estate went for a fairly good price but they just they finally just said hey look you know we're in our 60s we are not going to do this Mm -hmm. again they had evacuated and the house that they went to ended up being pretty much destroyed, too. They were up further north, but hailstorms came through and broke the slate roof in the house they were staying in. And it was like the disasters were following them. I know my former mother in law evacuated from New Orleans. She lived in Chalmetton
1: mm-hmm.
0: and she lost everything. And at 85 years old, she had to start over again. I think there just comes a point when you say, okay, I'm not going to do this again. After mm-hmm. Audrey, there were 40,000 people left homeless in that situation. And many of the survivors were housed at McNeese State University until they could be resettled. And you have to look at the difference in the way things were done in that time. Rescue parties were quickly dispatched. The Weather Bureau on Lake Charles was honored for their service during the disaster. But people came from all over to help. I mean, it was it was a volunteer force. I don't know that there was a lot of infrastructure within the government for disaster um, like relief at that point but I know that people just I mean they they jumped
1: in at that time federal disaster relief was under the civil defense program yeah a lot mm-hmm. of it was volunteer workforce
0: Cattlemen came in and reclaimed cattle that had been dispersed by the storm. Worked tirelessly without a lot of horses because the horses, many of them drown. And so they would come in and try to, to gather up the cattle and move them north until the people who owned them because they were branded could reclaim them because it was a huge cattle industry in that part of the country at that point. And the people worked tirelessly and and gave of themselves. I I know that there is still that spirit of help in some respects, but I don't think at the same level that we would have seen in that.
1: A lot of that has been centralized into organizations and government organizations and so people think mm-hmm. well maybe they don't need our help but I know right. in a lot of disasters people will show up from all over the country firefighters especially they'll just show up and say what can we do to help and that, that can actually be a problem because you have to have somebody mm-hmm. to set aside to coordinate that now you have to find places for them to stay you have to find food for them to eat and so sometimes it can almost be a burden to have people just show up like that. Well, and I think, too, that, you know,
0: people really do want to help and they have a spirit to help. And a lot of times the financial assistance that people offer in situations like that, because I know, you know, during the different hurricanes and things, you know, donate to Hurricane Hugo relief, donate to this relief. It's just have to be sure that it's actually getting where it needs to go. And I think sometimes that's the failure is that it doesn't always get where it needs to go, which is at the grassroots level to help people.
1: Right. And there are some verifiable agencies that are very good about that. The Baptist Men's Group in the South, they do a lot of food and cooking on site for people. And then the American Red Cross, they, if you designate your donation to that particular disaster, it goes directly to that disaster. And, you know, there's the Mennonite Disaster Services. Scientologists even have disaster relief. But you're right. That is difficult to just look and say, send money to the hurricane relief. You need to find out who's actually doing it and what they're doing with it. But there are definitely legitimate places Mm -hmm. that you can donate money. And they need money, sometimes more than material goods. I know during Hurricane Andrew, people were sent down all these clothes. And they were getting moldy. And they were sending, like, fur coats to Florida, things like that, you know. And what they ended up and did was they dug a big hole, took all those clothes, put them in the ground, buried them because they couldn't use them and they didn't have anybody to sort them. They didn't have anybody to make sure they were clean or distribute them or anything else. And it was mm-hmm. and it became more of a burden than it was a help.
0: Right. Well, and I think that's it. There has to be a coordination of response in those situations. And I know that a lot of that is relegated to, say, an agency like FEMA or the Red Cross or different agencies like that. But um, it is it is something people really do want to help. I know in Hurricane Harvey, you know, when I saw reports and things of that, you know, people really did just want to help. There's a nature in people that desires to to do well and to help.
1: When well, I find that all over the country when I travel is that Americans are good people. They're generous people. They help others. They care about other people and you know no matter what you hear from different places about people being bad there's always a few bad people but on, by and large all, the vast majority of people are good people i agree with that and i'm proud of yeah.
0: that yeah yeah and the the thing is that that is a a a good a good example to other places in the world and i know we do help other people in disasters too not just in our own country you know so that's that's definitely to be commended there were um some memorials and some statues are, are erected in, in Lake Charles, Louisiana, for the uh, unknown dead. There were several, they have 33 of them interred at the Highland Memorial Park in Lake Charles. It's so comforting to know that we're in a place now where when something like this is coming or is, is a disaster is looming on the horizon, that we can get forewarned and there's warning systems that will help. But I know that there's failure in some of those areas too.
1: Well, in Hurricane Audrey, there was actually people that sued the National Weather Service, which at the time was the National Weather Bureau. They've changed their name. They claimed that there wasn't enough warning. And the Weather Bureau said, we gave you all the warning with all the information that we had. Nobody expected it to just blow up into this huge storm overnight. There were several lawsuits and they all lost. The Weather Bureau did the best they could with what they had at the time. So in
0: 1963, one of the lawsuits that you spoke of, it's actually the, the kind of the beginning lawsuit, was filed by a, a gentleman named Whitney Party. And I read an account of his family. Um, I think there were six people in his family, and he was the only one who survived. They were trapped on the roof of their house, and little by little, he saw his children being Pulled away in the floodwaters, his wife, just, you know, that had to have been the most devastating thing to to survive and then to know that your entire family was gone. And he filed a lawsuit against the federal government, alleging that the Weather Bureau did not provide accurate or proper warning of the effects of the storm. Barty witnessed the loss of his family as the floodwaters swept them away. The suit was tried, and the Weather Bureau was found to be innocent of wrongdoing in that they gave their best assessment of the storm's effects and the eva- that evacuation orders, like the, the order to evacuate, was outside of the scope of their jurisdiction. That's right. Western District of Louisiana Judge Edwin Hunter presided over the case. He ruled that the Weather Bureau failed to convey the urgency of the situation to those in the coastal area, but errors were unintentional, and therefore the case was dismissed for lack of proof by on the part of Whitney Barty.
1: So it wasn't negligent. It wasn't negligent. They didn't have the information and not give it to everybody. It was the best they could do at the time.
0: And then subsequently, they, lawsuits were filed totaling $9,755,000 to claim damages, but they were dismissed without trial.
1: Yeah, that's because the first trial was found to be no negligence, and so they any other trial after that for the same thing, they would just not even bother spending the money to do it.
0: They were completely dismissed. So, But, you know, you think about the people that, yeah, the, the, the loss that those people experienced. Mm-hmm. I would probably seek some type of compensation if I felt like somebody didn't tell me. But there again, they had no way of knowing, especially with the kind of weather prediction and the, you know... Radar wasn't even introduced until, I think, the following year. Yeah,
1: and our satellite, of course, didn't go up anywhere near. It was 1957. Sputnik was up there. That was it.
0: Yeah, and 59, I think they launched the first. That was on my birthday, actually, January 31st, 1959. So it was not so much a failure, just an, an inability to really accurately predict. Because the storm sped up to between 6 and 10 miles an hour from when they initially mm-hmm. projected that it was going to make landfall. So that made the difference.
1: When things change that quickly with the Weather Bureau and you don't have the tools we have now, you don't know that. You can't even guess that's going to happen. Even now, hurricanes do stuff we can't predict with all the tools that we have. Yeah, it's
0: interesting. You know, initially we were talking about what came first, the chicken or the egg. In this book, there's a little picture in there. It says, what came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, the water or the wind? And so the effects of the storm, which was more devastating, which was the most potential for danger and disaster? Was it the water or was it the wind? And as it turns out, I think the answer is that it was equally devastating, the water and the wind.
1: Okay, well, we pretty much covered Audrey now you. and lots yes. of other things, <laughs> <laughs> but Louisiana is chronically flooded and <laughs> gets hit by a lot of hurricanes, yes, but there's definitely. a lot of great people there I know of. I've worked there enough. They're terrific. I'd like to thank McMinn for the review. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place for that. To find out more about Disaster Tales, visit our website at www.disastertales.com. Thank you for listening. Today's disaster tip comes from a tornado that hit Mississippi. In 2011, a tornado tore through Hattiesburg, Mississippi, including the University of Southern Mississippi. The dorms were hit and the students there lost their possessions, their books, their computers, and any work that they had already done. Very few of them had renter's insurance. Now renter's insurance is something that you can get from just about any insurance company. It's not terribly expensive and it will help you recover in case you have damage as in a fire or a tornado or a flood. Having renter's insurance could help you recover more quickly from a disaster.